Good morning, one and all. Just a, um, a follow-up to Dale's announcement about the Give It Up for Missions uh, campaign that we've been running for the last two months. Um, next month, we'll, still, we'll be running the um, Give It Up for Missions campaign again, except uh, this time we're asking that you might consider giving something up to help support uh, Isabella Kopsic as she goes over to Cambodia later in the year. Uh, you might remember she spoke here recently and uh, told of how she's going over. She's actually raised all the money to pay her way, uh, her own way. There's uh, no expense uh, spared on her part. She's actually um, worked hard and gathered all those funds together, so she's paying for her own trip. However, we'd like to support her as a church and encourage her by uh, giving her a little extra that she can then contribute to the work of Samaritan's Purse. Uh, you might recall that she spoke of their um, raising uh, money to provide uh, sand uh, filters for water to help purify water and um, other things. And the money that we raised during October will go to that purpose. So all money raised will go to the, uh, the mission itself and the work of that mission. Um, and Isabella herself has actually raised all the funds. So it would be a wonderful thing, I think, if we as a church could uh, support one of our young people in their uh, endeavours to serve the Lord in this way. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word today, we just pray that you might guide our thinking, help us to uh, understand the passage, but I guess more importantly to understand the implications of it, what it has to say to us and how it might have an impact upon our lives. Amen. <coughs> well, we have a first slide up on the screen there. I think I have to do my little thingy. What's it? Oh, there we go. Look at that. Now we might. Hang on, it's almost happening. Oh, look at that. It's worth waiting for, wasn't it? It's well known words from Mahatma Gandhi. Just thought uh, we might find those interesting. We're not going to say anything about them. They're there, they speak for themselves. But that's kind of been a bit of the direction that we'll be um, heading in this morning as we consider uh, this particular uh, passage. You might wonder how it is that we can sort of go on and speak for a couple of hours on a passage such as this. Um, I thought about that myself, but look, I found it really easy eventually. So but I, I guarantee I won't go quite that long. So remember the passage itself. There's only a few verses, so I might just reread it. If you have it, um, a Bible with you, then uh, you could open up. It's just verses 9 to 12 of James chapter 3. So... Very simple. The you know the passage itself speaks for itself. It's not difficult to interpret, uh, but the import of it is incredibly significant, and it is very difficult to enact. So let's just read it through again. So with it, that is the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, that's the tongue, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh water and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So now you've got that in your mind. You've heard it read twice. You've probably memorised it by now. And it's only a short passage, but keep it in your heads as we go through. So I want to spend a little bit of time just sort of saying, well, this is what this passage is about, and then work from that point. Um, I think the message is really very clear. It's a really fairly simple uh, and straightforward passage of Scripture. 
You know, we know that uh, James is addressing believers. You know, he calls the people he's addressing my brothers. So he's obviously addressing Christians. And the concern he has is one that he expresses very bluntly, quite unequivocally. He says, these things ought not to be so. Right? These things ought not to be so. So what things are he speaking of? Well, he's obviously continuing his discussion that's already occurred on the use of the tongue. And really what he's doing here is he's issuing a warning about, or what we might call a warning about hypocrisy, a warning against hypocrisy. He says, in effect, don't be the person who says all the kind of things you're expected to say about God, but also the person who curses people behind their backs. You know, the, the, the hypocrisy of it all is obvious and is damning. He says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. A statement like that is not just a factual observation. You just say, oh, that's just what happens. It's actually a condemnation that such a thing could be the case. And then continuing his discussion of the use of the tongue in this way, um, he goes on to continue that at warning. And he uses a couple of analogies to make it more clear. He tries to make sure that his readers will understand. Now, his readers will be people who are very familiar with this kind of thing, you know, sources of water, produce, that kind of stuff. And he makes some really obvious points. You know, can you get salt water from a freshwater pond or fresh water from a saltwater pond? Well, of course you can't. Can you get figs from a grapevine? Well, of course you can't. The answer is obvious. They're rhetorical statements. So what's he really saying? He's saying, well, you know what a thing is by the fruit that it produces, by the thing that comes from it. So when you look at the thing that comes from it, you've got to tell what the producer is like. So if a person curses people, what's it say about the person? It reveals their heart. You can't possibly have, logically, a person who both blesses God as Lord and Father and curses people who are made in the image of God. It doesn't fit. And so he's really condemning those people, saying, well, look, if you're pretending to bless God and Father, that's all it is, a pretense. You can't then curse people if you're genuinely blessing the Lord and Father. What it does is, in effect, reveal the true character of the speaker. It shows the speaker to be a hypocrite. So a hypocrite, as we probably know, is someone who pretends to be someone or something they're not. The word was used to refer to actors on a stage, hence the little masks there. Uh, people playing a part as they hid their true identity behind a mask. That's where the, the word comes from. And that's, in effect, what this passage uh, deals with and condemns. Hypocritical use of speech. The speech that we, we uh, use will reveal something of ourselves. Now, this is a matter that's dealt with a lot in the New Testament. Jesus deals with it. He takes it very, very seriously. The apostles deal with it in their, in their writings. Let's just have a, a quick look at some of the things Jesus says. Uh, for example, well, I think probably here James is echoing the ideas of Jesus. In uh, Matthew 23, we're probably very familiar with that particular passage. Jesus condemns the religious leaders of his day, the, his day, the scribes and the Pharisees. He condemns them for hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, from ver in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. And we all know that's the standard definition of hypocrite. 
person who doesn't practice what they preach. And as he does this, Jesus then launches into seven woes. Now, a woe is the sort of thing that uh, is a prophetic utterance of judgment against someone. So he actually is judging these people. He's actually uh, using the language of Old Testament prophets to say something very severe. And ultimately he warns them about this sort of thing. Out of the seven woes, uh, six of them begin this way. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he condemns them for that. And he doesn't hold back. He says, you hypocrites will get what you deserve. Verse 33 of Matthew 23 says, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? So that's the danger of that kind of hypocrisy. It's an utterance of judgment. And there are other places where Jesus speaks equally uh, strongly about hypocrisy. In, uh, in Matthew 5, well, it's not on the screen, but in Matthew 5, for example, he, he speaks about murder and says, you know, you've heard that it was said that it's, uh, you know, it's uh, a sin to kill. He actually says it's actually also a sin to uh, abuse someone verbally, to speak ill of them. Then he goes into Matthew chapter 7, all this in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. It says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, uh, will use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I remember uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the uh, person who gave his life for his faith during uh, the end of World War II, he made this comment. He said, Judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. What a telling statement. And then later on in Matthew chapter 7 also, we find Jesus using the same kind of analogies that James used. In uh, chapter 7 from verse 15, Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognise them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thorn bushes? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognise them by their fruits." How true that is. And this really is what James is uh, harking back to. He's no doubt remembering the words of Jesus. And he's echoing the teaching of Jesus when he says what he says. How can a person both bless God and curse other people? You can know a person by their fruit, including the fruit of their speech. See, James sees this sin of hypocrisy as a very serious business. In fact, the very language he uses uh, indicates how serious it is. <coughs> he says, we use our tongues to curse people who are made in the image of God. Now, I think probably James has Genesis chapter 9 in mind here. You might remember that back in Genesis chapter 9, uh, after Noah and the crew got off the ark, that 
the kind of the covenant was sort of renewed with Noah, and included in that was this statement. He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. God made man in his own image. Why is murder wrong? Murder is wrong because the person being murdered is made in the image of God. As human beings, we have an intrinsic value by virtue of our being made in the image of God. That is not true of any other part of creation, whether it be a tree or a monkey. James is saying that the person who genuinely blesses God couldn't possibly curse a person, for it is God himself who has invested humanity with a worth above all else that exists, and therefore it would be completely inconsistent and totally illogical. And this is God himself has demonstrated by the very fact that Jesus came and became a man. What greater sign is that, that humanity is invested with great worth, and that Jesus became a man and died for our sake. See, the sacrificial death of Jesus reveals the extent of God's love for us. So how could any Christian curse that which God blesses? See, even the language of blessing and cursing links us back to the Old Testament. God used those sorts of terms in passages such as uh, chapters like uh, Leviticus 26, which includes part of the, um, uh, God's instructions with regard to his covenant with Israel. See, obedience resulted in blessing, and disobedience results in judgment or cursing. He's using the language here, or James is using the language here, of the Old Testament, language of blessing and cursing. He's saying, this is, this is super serious, this is about our relationship with God. And in fact, you go so far to say, and I don't think I'm stretching it too much, to suggest that the person who takes it upon themselves to bless God and curse people is actually trying to usurp the very place of God. For blessing and cursing is what God does. It's not what we do. We enjoy a blessing, and we're able to bless because God has enabled. But if we curse, we actually act contrary to God himself and to the very heart of of God. And I think in a sense, as I said, we are attempting in doing that to usurp the place that is rightly God's and taking it upon ourselves. And what does Jesus say about those sorts of people? In Matthew chapter 7 again, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name, bless the Lord and Father? I just added that bit, by the way. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, there are some, hopefully none amongst us here today, who are faking it who are living a Christian life that's not real, that's merely a pretense. And some people will find themselves, and again, I hope no one here, when they get to judgment, God will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what do we do with all this stuff? I've got kind of been a bit negative, you know, it's a bit of a downer right now, I think. So... Can we do anything? You know, was there, is there some practical application about all this apart from just make us feel bad? Well, this might help us. 
So look, welcome. I actually thought it could be a useful thing, and I have a little quote from Billy Sunday that sort of uh, shows as well, but I actually thought I could get everybody here, because everyone will have a mobile phone, I won't do this by the way, um, and just say, look, you know, apparently mobile phones have cameras on them. I have seen mobile phones, I actually own one, and every now and then I turn it on. Um, but they have cameras, and you can, you know, apparently, because the kiddies at school do this, they, particularly ones who think they're particularly attractive, they put the camera and hold it up and then they do their hair. So, so using the camera, I guess, as a mirror of some kind. Now, I was thinking perhaps we could all do that and then say, you want to see a hypocrite? Oh. And the reality is, if we're honest with ourselves, it's probably true. There are aspects of our own lives that don't quite match up. You know, Billy Sunday, the old preacher, evangelist from the past, can't read it there, so I have to get my little bit of paper out. It says, hypocrites in the church, yes, and in the lodge and at home. Don't hunt through the church for a hypocrite. Go home and look in a mirror. Hypocrites, yes. See that you make the number one less. Years ago, um, the London Times had uh, sort of an article in an editorial, and it closed the editorial section with a question. Is, and the question was simply, what is wrong with the world? And many people will be familiar with this, um, this story. What is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton decided he might forward a response. And so he wrote, and I quote, Dear Sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Just think about that for a moment. What's wrong with the world? I am. I wonder if we would say that about ourselves in our better moments, perhaps. You see, the thing that's being suggested, really, and I'm suggesting to you today, is that the issue here is, is really a universal one. It's common to humanity, whether Christians or not. But certainly it's a problem that Christians have to uh, deal with. At some level, we are all hypocrites. And I guess at some point we need to ask ourselves some rather searching questions. We might argue, yeah, what, what really motivates me? You know, what, what sort of drives me? What, what motivates my speech and, and my action? And you know, we're not alone in this sort of thing. In fact, God's willing to help us. In Psalm 139, verse 23, he says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We can ask God to help us to search ourselves and to reveal those things that we might need to deal with. And we might ask ourselves a simple question like, what sort of image do I want to project to other people? What do I want other people to see? You know, sometimes, even when I was thinking of this, I was feeling very guilty as I was preparing the sermon, I actually want people to see this is a decent sermon. That's probably bad. That's, that's probably prideful. Hmm? What, what sort of image do we want other people to see? Do I, what do we kind of value about ourselves. You know, what do we take pride in, maybe? Maybe it's the way we look. Maybe it's because we think we're smarter than other people. Maybe we kind of like to be um, popular and we'll do stuff to help that. Maybe you know, we're sort of known for being a bit tough-minded in our decision-making. You know, we, we know ourselves. So you know, what drives us? You, know, you can fill in the blanks. Think about yourself, as I think about myself. You know, a lot of these things aren't necessarily bad. I'm not suggesting that at all. But sometimes 
when those kinds of good things are given an unwarranted priority, they in effect become bad. You can, it's not that hard to invest good things um, with ultimacy. You can turn a good thing into an ultimate thing and make it the thing that is truly the thing that drives. And it can be really simple. You know, I want to provide for my family, so I'll just drive and drive and drive in my employment and my work to get to the top so that I can do this, that and the other. But if that's the thing that truly motivates you and everything else is left behind, it's a bad thing because you've given it an ultimate value and it doesn't deserve that. So we need to think through those things. Yeah, what about the kinds of um, you know, things that are private to us, our secret thoughts? You know, oh yeah, what, yeah, you might be thinking about a certain person. I could perhaps allow you to do that right now. Just think of a person you like me. No, no, I didn't. Um, but we recognise those kinds of things in us. The kinds of judgments we make in our own minds. What about our, our secret sins? You know, the sins of, of perhaps lust or, or maybe ill thought of, of others. There are all sorts of things that are part of our private lives, our secret lives, that we think no one knows about, but God does. What are those things? Maybe we're a bit envious. Or maybe we covet something that someone else has got. Or maybe we're a bit jealous about somebody else's um, possessions or their appearance or the fact that they've done better than we have you know, in, in material life or whatever. Yep. There's lots of folks here on Facebook. Uh, I'm not, but I use glasses all the time, so I keep up with things. Otherwise, I wouldn't have a clue what, what the family's doing. Um, I mean, how else do you see photos of your grandchildren unless you have Facebook? It just doesn't happen. Anyway, um, now, but think about it. You read some of the stuff that people make comments about. I mean, I'm not really that concerned about how many times a person's gone to the toilet that day. But some people seem to be. Or what they've had for dinner that night. But some people seem to be. Yet, do we fill that kind of stuff with perhaps invective or vitriol or just vacuous nonsense? Do we spend a lot of time on it? Um, some people find that uh, actually quite addictive and habit-forming. Think about the culture we live in. You know, for example, last year, um, one of my uh, well, pre-service teachers I was supervising, her husband was a major in the army. And one of the things she was saying was that whenever her husband came back home after being out in the field for some time, he came back army. And so he'd swear, he's a Christian guy, swear, he'd be abrupt with the children, and they'd worked a sort of a pattern or a sort of a, a thing with, with, within the family where he'd be able to, she would say, you're not in the army now, you're home. And he'd, go, he'd have to snap back. But it's, not, it's easy, isn't it, to be kind of you know, caught up in a particular culture, to enter into a lifestyle. Uh, you can easily become your role. You think of the work you do. It's not that hard to become your role. In that particular work, you might be required to do certain things that might be completely inappropriate. And yet you do them because in, you, know, you sort of have compartmentalised life. Think about um, politicians. I mean, how difficult must it be for a politician, and our son's attempting to be a politician. Um, I won't say which party is because most people here will probably shoot me, but he's in the Labor Party, um, <laughs> which personally I think is the right one. But um, <laughs> so, so you can, That doesn't mean you stop listening just because I've offended anyone with my left-wing sort of propaganda. Um, but think about the, the tension it must, how, how difficult it must be for a, a Christian politician to 
be loyal to the party, which is a requirement, and a disciple of Christ when those things come into conflict. Now, they won't always, but there's a tension there that will always you know, be there every now and then pulling. How do you do that? Think of the, you know, the difficulty it is. You know, I think we need to pray for those kinds of folks. You know, we pray for our Christian politicians and for our politicians generally. Think about a building site. I don't know how many people here work on building sites. Um, but, you know, often the language is colourful. Often the, uh, the way they speak of um, the fairer sex is a, a somewhat suspect. Um, think about those kinds of things. It's, again, if you're a, a, you know, a tradie on a building site, it's pretty easy to get caught up in the, the culture of the site. I mean, it must be incredibly difficult to, in a sense, stand alone. I mean, years ago, I knew a guy who was a plumber, and he was working for a government, uh, government service, and he, they would go to work, and uh, they'd work you know, very hard for the time they were there, then they'd finish, and all the other guys would just nick off well before for shutdown time. And so here's a Christian thought, what on earth do I do? If I go back, you know, back to uh, head office... It'll mean I've dobbed in all the other guys. If I don't stay on the site and continue working, even though there's no work to do, then am I being Christian? Am I being, you know, am I honouring my uh, commitment to the Lord? And so what he used to do, it was difficult, he was only a, a young guy, is he would just stay on the site until, until, um, until the you know, end of day and then go home. Everyone else had already gone, he'd be there for an hour or two. So... Yeah, those sorts of things are really, really difficult. You know, whatever profession, whatever walk of life we're in, whatever, whatever it is, you know, it's really hard not to take on the prevailing culture because quite often some stuff of it, aspects of it, are really very good, or at least appear to be. Um, and when we think about the way we speak and those kinds of things, and even all and all that stuff, speaking ill of someone is really just a symptom of a much deeper problem. It's just a symptom of another problem. You know, Paul, the apostle. He had difficulty in this area as well. He found it difficult to live a consistently God-honouring life. In Romans chapter 7, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. See, Paul is plagued by the reality of his own sin. He fought the same battles we fight. But thankfully, Romans 8 begins with a victorious declaration. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus and the law of sin, uh, from the law of sin and death. See, despite our weaknesses, despite our failures, despite our hypocrisies, our standing before God is certain. We are not condemned, though we deserve to be, because Christ was condemned in our place. Yeah, the reality of the whole thing is that sanctification is a process. You know, it's something that God does in us, and it's something we actively work at. We are, in fact, a work in progress. We are to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. <coughs> me. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, we're meant to imitate Christ in the way we live, in our attitudes, in our relationships. You know, and Christ's life is characterised by humility and gentleness and 
patient forbearance and other person-centeredness and sacrifice. You know, he gave himself, not just for us, but for, for us who were his enemies. You know, if we live like Christ, we wouldn't speak ill of others. It just wouldn't happen. It would make no sense. It would be against our deepest motivations. In Galatians 3, it goes on and says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, through faith. For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, the things that once gave us our sense of belonging, perhaps even our sense of self, things like race, status and gender, all of that has been eradicated. We are now in Christ. We're not Jew or Gentile, or slave or free, male or female in that sense. Those things have been replaced with a redeemed humanity, a new community. We are a community of disciples. We're the church. We are those who are one in Christ. We now have a new sense of self, a new way of belonging. See, we're Christians. And people will will know that we are Christians by our love. How can we speak ill of those with whom we are one in Christ? In 1 John 4 verse 20 it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Isn't this just echoing what James has said? For he he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So what do we do about it? Well, I think there's just a few really achievable things that we can think about that may have an impact. There's probably lots of others. Um, if you're in home group or perhaps um, happen to be a, um, a person at Grace Lutheran College, there's one or two of these you may have heard before. Um, the first is adjust our thinking. You know, it's really difficult to top, stop doing something that's become habitual. I think one of the ways we can perhaps manage it is by replacing it with something else. Offer an alternative. In Philippians 4, it says, Paul writes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So we can choose what we fill our minds with. We can choose which movies we see. We can choose which TV shows we watch. We can choose which computer games we play. We can choose um, the character of of our conversation. Is it gossipy? Is it unsavoury? Is it just empty? Is it vacuous? Such choices will then influence our attitudes and by extension our speech. In Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Isn't that wonderful that we can, by our speech, give grace to those who hear? So think about, what do we fill our minds with? How are we going to adjust our thinking? Well, we adjust our thinking by filling it with, with good stuff. Things that are excellent, things that are noble, things that are worthy. That's stuff, rather than other stuff. And we can do that. 
It's a really straightforward and practical thing. I know it's hard, because sometimes we're caught up in habits, but we can do it. Yeah, we, we all know our own particular sinful weaknesses, and they'll be different for each person, really. And we can, though, endeavour to avoid indulging them by actively avoiding the context in which we might be tempted. And we can equally actively foster our best selves. Isn't that true? You just need to think about it for a while. Again, it's not hard. I mean, so it's not easy. It's actually really hard. But it's possible that we can do that. We can, in a sense, cooperate with God in the sanctifying process. In uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, he uh, on one occasion used a fairy tale uh, as an illustration. He t- he'd taken a story written in the late 1800s um, about a profligate and debauched man by the name of Lord George Bell. Lord Bell lived an ugly, self-indulgent life um, and it showed in his appearance. But Lord Bell fell in love with a saintly woman. And in order to win her affections, he donned a mask and began to act in a saintly manner. And as a result of that, the woman fell in love with him and they married. And some years later, another woman, a woman he had, Lord Bell had wronged in his, um, his past, turned up. And she sought to expose him for what he really was. And so she compelled him to remove the mask that he was still wearing to show the face that she assumed would be ugly. And so he took off the mask, only to find that by long wear he had taken on the shape of the mask. He had become beautiful. So although Lord Bell had been a wicked man, love motivated him to act differently. At first it was mere pretense. It was a pretense he continued out of love for the woman he married. What began as a pretense became a habit and eventually turned into a reality. A transformation had taken place. Think about the habits of our lives. Sometimes they're hard. Sometimes we don't quite mean it. But we can actually engage in godly habits. And ultimately they will be transformative. So we have the wherewithal to develop godly habits and to practice them. Here's a couple of other really brief suggestions. Contemplate the Bible. Seems a bit obvious, doesn't it? Um, if you've been in home group recently and you're um, one of the groups that is looking at Tim Keller's prayer, um, some of the things that I'm thinking about here have come out of this. It's, uh, and they're obvious things. They're not new. They just He's put them in an interesting way. So uh, I would recommend that perhaps you might buy and read this book. If you want a study guide for it, I've written one and I can give you a link to it. But that's another issue. Um, but people in home groups have been looking at that, or a number of the groups have, not all. And one of the things that uh, Keller suggests, based on the work of Martin Luther, is that we should simply contemplate the Bible. This is not a Bible study. This is simply taking a passage and looking at it saying, what's this saying to me? What's this passage saying to me? Bible study is sort of a, a whole other area where you get you know, really deeply involved, look at the words and blah, blah, blah. But what is this passage saying to me? It's a devotional kind of reading. It's a meditation of the scripture so we can say, Am I challenged by this? Is there something here which is is suggesting a corrective in my life? Is there something here for which I can give thanks to God? Is there something here that is challenging me and I should pray about? So contemplate the Bible. Make that a daily habit. And once you've done that, turn those contemplations into prayer. 
you know how difficult it is to pray? You know, you sort of doze off or get a bit bored or you, once you got through the list, it's a bit, you know, you think, what do I do next? And it gets a bit habitual, a bit dry. But you'll find that it's not so if you use the Bible as a basis for your prayer. Having contemplated the Bible, pray the passage. Apply it to yourself. What does this mean for me? For what might I give thanks to God? And give thanks. For what might I realise that I really do adore God for what he has done? Adore him. What challenges is placed before me? What sin might it reveal? What way forward might it offer? All of those sorts of things you can find in a contemplation of a passage which you've turned into prayer. And the last one I'm going to just mention is this. Paraphrase and personalise the Lord's Prayer. This again is a Martin Luther thing. Every morning and evening, Martin Luther would take the Lord's Prayer and he would read it, but he would actually then paraphrase its bits and apply it to his own life. He said, Our Father, O Lord, you are the Father of us all. I give you praise for that. Who art in heaven? You're presiding over all that is. For this I give you thanks, that you are in charge, and I can submit to that. He says, you don't need to take a long time to do that. But he did that every morning and every evening. And we might find that difficult. We might even, um, in our day and age, find that a bit dull. But try it two, three, four times a week. See how you go. Paraphrase and personalise the Lord's Prayer. It's a useful practice. And you'll find that it actually is really helpful. So what's James on about? He's simply saying that if you're going to bless the Lord, who's God and Father then you will also bless people. That which comes from our mouth will reveal who we really are. And if who we really are is not something we're very pleased about, then we need to do something about changing that. And God will help us in that. God is working in us through his spirit and we can cooperate with the work of God and his spirit in us. We can develop godly habits. We can choose what we stick in our brains, in our minds. We can engage with the Bible and we can personalise it and pray through that which it speaks to us, about which it speaks to us. We can do simple things like take the Lord's Prayer, paraphrase it, personalise it, and that will eventually have a transformative effect. As the Spirit of God works in us, as we cooperate with his work, we will find that we too might become beautiful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way in which you work in us. We think that we are not condemned. But we recognise that we have failings, that we have shortcomings, that we have inadequacies, that we are really hypocrites. But Father, we pray that you might continue to firstly reveal that to us, reveal the areas in our lives where we need to change. That you would, through your spirit, work a transforming work, that you might make us the people you would have us be, that we might imitate Christ. Father, even if it's pretense, help us to begin to develop godly habits so that they become ultimately real and true and transformative. Father, we just ask that you might continue to work in us, you might challenge us, and that you might turn us into the people you would have us be. And this we would pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.